It is time for us to go to the Lord in prayer. Our country seems to be divided right now. And the divide continues to grow deeper, it seems. I join you in your concern for our country. And now, with the passing of a Supreme Court justice, 45 days before an election, our country is on the brink, it seems. All the more important for us to pray. Would you stand and let's pray together. Lord God, as we stand in your presence, it's because you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of our honor, of our respect. As we consider what it means to fear the Lord, we recognize that that fear is about respect. It's about respect for your power, for your majesty. You, and only you, are worthy of our praise. And God, as we consider your power, may we not be distracted in our worship of you by the divisions of the day. We pray for our country that there would be unity where division seems to be ruling. That there would be discussion when all there seems to be is shouting. That there might be, Lord, the ability of our country to bend our knee and worship you together. Lord, we pray for our leaders. I pray specifically for President Trump, Vice President Pence. Lord God, they need wisdom. I ask that you would grant them wisdom and that they would listen to you and that they would yield their hearts to you. God, we pray for this election coming up. We pray for Joe Biden. God, give him wisdom as he is running for the office of president. Lord, this election could be such a divisive moment and it does seem to be a terribly divisive moment. But Lord, I pray that somehow in the middle of this we would find unity as a, as a country, but not over some political stance, unity that is based upon the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I pray that our country would be a Christian nation. And not just in what we say, but by the, the people that make up this place. God, we ask that our country would yield to you. We need you. And now with the opening on the Supreme Court, God, we, we're thankful for the many people who are willing to serve and we know that this is not a small thing that right before an election, we have an opening on the Supreme Court. The same thing happened four years ago, Lord. And in many ways, it was very difficult for this country. God, could there be unity? Could there be unity? I pray for it. But only unity underneath your name, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you that we can trust in you. We pray for all of our leaders. 
Governor Walls, for the Supreme Court, for the Senate, for the House. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be, once again, looking at Luke. Last Sunday, we looked at the beginning of chapter 9, where Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the good news of the kingdom of God with power. We also studied the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. We looked closely at how Jesus' power worked through the disciples to perform that miracle. And we were challenged as a church to remember in the same way that Jesus' power flows through us. Not because we are smart, but because God grants us power. I challenged us to remember that we must be connected to the power source, Jesus Christ. The passage we look at today is a key turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray and prepare ourselves for God's Word. God... We need you to speak through your word to us. Help us, Lord, to understand what you have for us. Holy Spirit, speak. Your servants are listening. Amen. Well, you remember from last Sunday that the miracle feeding of the 5,000 had very strong echoes from the Old Testament, especially about Elijah. So just to pick up where we left off last week, I want to remind you of the story in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. A man came from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. You know, when we read that story of Elijah, in parallel with Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, it is obvious that there is a connection. Remember Luke chapter 9, verse 14. About 5,000 men were there, but he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. 50. I wonder why Jesus said groups of 50. Do you remember what we said last week? It was purposeful that the groups were 50. 5,000 divided by 50. Do you know what that is? It's 100. This was Jesus very much on purpose reminding people of the story of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 4. The miracle of Jesus, the miracle power of Jesus. It's like the power of Elijah times a hundred. That's what Jesus was saying when he said divide the people into groups of 50. And now that little bit there is going to make the next section make a whole lot more sense. Now let's look at chapter 9 verses 18 through 20. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. 
But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. It is not surprising that many people would think that Jesus is Elijah. I mean, think about it. He literally redid Elijah's miracle times a hundred. And it wouldn't be surprising that people would think he was John the Baptist. If you also remember from just the last chapter, um, King Herod Antipas thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life, even though he had chopped John the Baptist's head off. So it's not surprising that the disciples would say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. But Jesus pushes the question with his disciples. They had now witnessed firsthand the power of Jesus in many different situations. Power over nature. Power over demons, power over sickness, power over death. All of this is echoes from the sermons I've been preaching to you in the last three weeks, isn't it? Power. And now power, 50 times, 100 times greater than Elijah. Who is this Jesus? And Peter, in chapter 9, verse 20, gives his answer, doesn't he? But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now to our ears, that answer, I mean, it's, it's a right answer, but doesn't it sound a little bit strange? I mean, we're used to referring to Jesus as Jesus Christ, right? I mean, we usually say, when we talk about Jesus, we say Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We say that. And... Outside the church, um, the term is the same. Um, People outside the church often say Jesus Christ, don't they? But as a curse word, you know what I'm talking about. People say this all the time, Jesus Christ. They say that all the time as a horrible curse. Now, I worked construction for a lot of summers while I went to college, and I'm not sure that I even have the mental ability to count the number of times that I heard Jesus Christ use as a swear word, as a curse word. My coworkers said Jesus Christ more than my pastor did, I'm pretty sure, in a week. They did not say it respectfully. It was said as a curse word. I mean... I don't even understand, does anybody even know why Jesus Christ is used as a curse word in our culture? It doesn't even make sense. It, it doesn't make sense at all. But if any of you in here, I'm guessing if I, if I asked you to raise your hand, did you hear the word Jesus Christ used as a curse word this week? Raise your hand. This week. Yes. And... If you didn't raise your hand and you're in Bertha Hewitt's school system, I think you're probably lying or not listening to what I'm saying right now. We get a little problem with swearing in Bertha Hewitt's school, don't we? Hmm, interesting. I need to pause right here. I'm going to take a time out for my sermon in Luke and just give a very short pause. If you've gotten into the habit of using vulgar and coarse language, would you please stop? Is that a little bit too much to ask 
from the pulpit. Well, if, if you don't just want to believe me, could we try Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5? Can I just remind you of what this says? But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, if you've got a problem using bad language, if this is like a habit that you have, can I remind you of the last verse? Can, I, can we look at this again? For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Can I just do a yikes right there? You understand that that is the verse that comes right after, don't use coarse language. Right? Did, did everybody get that? Don't use coarse language because you have no part in the kingdom of God if you do. That's what the verse says. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be all judgmental on you. I'm not trying to be like this. I'm saying I'm just reading this passage from Ephesians. Coarse language and not inheriting the kingdom of God go together. Now let's go back to Luke, shall we? Luke 9.20, again, the confession of Peter. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And here's where, again, it's strange, because whether in the church or out of the church, when we talk about Jesus, we say Jesus Christ. When people outside the church use the name of Jesus, they say Jesus Christ. Okay? But you know what we don't say? The Christ of God. It sounds strange. You know, I think it sounds strange because most people inside the church or outside the church don't know what that means. In fact, if you ask most people, what's Jesus' last name, what would they say? Christ. They would say Jesus' last name is Christ. Okay, that's not True. So here's a, here's a bit of, of something for you to know. If someone ever says, what's Jesus' last name? You will say, of Nazareth. <laughs> Jesus' last name is of Nazareth. Back at this time, in 2,000 years ago, people didn't have last names. You could also say Jesus' last name was son of Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph. Okay, there weren't last names like we have last names today. So you either said where, what town you were from, or you said who your father was. That's how you said your last name. I am Jason, son of Ernie of Brookings, South Dakota. That's how you would say your last name at the time of Jesus. Because he didn't have last names. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, if you didn't learn anything else today, that would be a great thing to learn. Okay? Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is Jesus' title. It's his title. So what does that mean? Well, I've, I've said this to some of you before, but not everybody may remember this, so I'm going to just remind you. The word Christ means 
anointed one. It means anointed one. The word Christ is a Greek word. In Hebrew, the word is Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same word in two different languages. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. They both mean the anointed one. They are titles. And this comes from the Old Testament. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? This is the prophet Samuel anointing Saul with oil, and Saul then became the king of Israel. The anointing with oil, the pouring of oil on Saul's head, was the sign to everybody that Jesus is the anointed king of Israel. The first king. Saul was the first king of Israel, of the entire country together, Israel. And then, if you look at 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 and 13, we read another story of anointing. So he, so he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy, with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. Of course, this is David. Him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Then Samuel went to Ramah. Again, here we have the second king of Israel, anointed by Samuel. The flask of oil poured on David's head. And that was the sign to everybody present, including David's older brothers, who I'm sure thought it was great. That was the sign that David is the chosen one of God. Now look, it also says, and power. The power of God came upon David. And if you look back earlier, the power of God had also come upon Saul. Now, we don't have time to go into all of this, but anointing and then power. Now, that word anointing, Messiah, to anoint. And then the word turned into not just the anointing, but the anointed, the word Messiah. And then from Hebrew to Greek, Christos. It means the anointed one. For Jews, this idea of anointing was connected with the Spirit of the Lord and then connected with that Spirit of the Lord giving power to God's chosen king. In the same way that that the judges were given power, the kings were given power. Power. The power to, to have super strength and ability. The power to unite a nation. The power to defeat enemies. The power of God. The power of the chosen one. Both Saul and David were given power from God. And God then made a special covenant with David, declaring that David's descendants would always be on the throne of Israel. Look now at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8-12. through 12. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since that the time I appointed 
leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. The promise, the promise that the Jews held on to, that the anointing that was given to David would pass on through David's descendants forever. And with that anointing came the power of God to accomplish the task of God, the task of the king, the power, the anointing, the promise, all intermingled together in this one word, Messiah, Christ. So for Jews, for Jews at the time of Jesus, the idea of the anointed one of God was connected with being king, but not just any king, the king, the specially chosen king, the chosen one of God, the son of David, the king of the Jews, the one who had special power from God himself. I've got one paragraph of timeline in here. Woo-hoo. David was king 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Jesus. And those 1,000 years from David to Jesus, they really stunk for the Jews. They were not fun. For those 1,000 years, the nation of Israel split in two, the northern part and the southern part, and then those two nations fought against each other. Then in 722 B.C., the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, wiped them off of the face of the earth. And then the southern part hobbled along for another 100 years until 586, the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom and took the southern people, all of the rulers, and hauled them to Babylon where they were in exile for 70 years. When they finally came back from exile, not everything Well, everything could have been good, but it wasn't. They tried to do stuff. It was a big failure. They got the temple built, but it was not anywhere close to what they had hoped for or what they remembered. And then just when they thought they were kind of getting things together, they were conquered again by a group of pagans. This group of pagans was worse than the last group. And they actually set up a statue of Zeus in the temple holy play, the Holy of Holies. They rebelled against them, and they were partially successful, and they kind of ruled themselves for a little bit. And then another group came in and conquered them again, another group of pagans, this time the Romans. And this group of Romans might have been worse than the previous ones. And the Jews were just fed up for a thousand years. They had failed and failed and failed and failed. And that's where we get to at the time of Jesus. For the past at least 70 years, The Jews had been ruled by the Romans, and it was bad. And in all of this time, for a thousand years, the Jews had been desperately wanting, had been pleading with God, had begged for God to send them another king like David. God, please just tell us who your chosen one is so that we can throw off the shackles of these pagan oppressors. Please, God, just show us 
who it is. And back to Luke. Do you understand how Peter's little statement in chapter 9, verse 20, when Jesus asked, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered. Do you understand that Peter's answer here? Peter's answer is pregnant with a thousand years of suffering. This is the hinge point of the book of Luke. In this moment, right here in Luke chapter 20, Luke, the story of Luke, the gospel of Luke, changes. It hinges. And everything from this point on is different in the book of Luke, as we're going to see as we continue our journey. Now, we read that and we think, well, obviously, <laughs> right? Uh, not a big surprise that Peter said Jesus is the Christ. I mean, it's weird he calls him the Christ. Well, now you know it's not weird, right? Because it's his title. But we look at that and go, duh, why didn't Peter get it quicker, right? But I want you to look at something. We have now been through nine chapters of the book of Luke, and I want to show you all of the places before this where the word Christ is used. So let's take a look. Chapter 2, verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Well, that's familiar. We say that every year at Christmas, right? That's a Christmas verse. That's from an angel to a bunch of loser shepherds that nobody listened to. Okay? So that's the first time. From the mouth of an angel to a bunch of loser shepherds. All right, how about the second one? Luke chapter 2, verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. There's the word, Christ. So that one goes to Simeon. A really, really old guy everybody thought should have died years ago. Okay? He hangs on just long enough to see the baby Jesus, and I'm pretty sure died right after that. Okay? So now we got a group of loser shepherds, and we got some guy named Simeon that died right away after it. All right, how about this? Luke 3.15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. Okay, so here we have the word Christ again. The title Christ, the anointed one. But not to Jesus. It's to John the Baptist. People thought that John the Baptist might be the Christ. Okay? And how about Luke 4, 41? Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Okay, demons. Okay, so now the, in, up to this point in the book of Luke, we got angels talking to loser shepherds. We got some old guy who died right away. We've got uh, people misunderstanding that John the Baptist was the Christ. And then we've got demons who Jesus didn't even allow to speak. And by the way, that's it. In the entire book of Luke, from chapter 1 until chapter 9, those are all the references, uh, that's, that's the only word Christ, it, that's it. One, two, three, four places. Nobody up to this point, except those people I just said, nobody had connected the dots that Jesus was the Christ. Again, we take it for granted because we know like the rest of the story, and we've read this so many times that it kind of gets like our eyes glaze over, 
But look at this in context. This is the advantage of expository preaching. This is a big deal that Jesus fi- or that Paul, Peter finally says Jesus is the Christ. And it's the turning point. This is the turning point in the book of Luke. So as we look at the whole scope of the book of Luke, this moment, everything turns. And by the way, what's about to happen is not only does everything turn in this moment from thinking now about Jesus as the Christ and what that means, but at this moment, we're going to find out everything turns toward Jerusalem. And those two things are intimately connected. Once you realize that Jesus is the Christ, once that becomes real, you will now understand why everything turns toward Jerusalem. Because what Jesus says next doesn't seem to make any sense at all, especially to Peter. But it doesn't make sense to us either in many ways. So look at now, starting again in verse 20 through 22. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Again, it's such a big deal that Peter says this. You are the one we've been waiting for for a thousand years. The one who's going to free us, the one who's going to be the king, the the next David. You are the one. But look look at what Jesus says immediately after this. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. That, I would argue, is the most unexpected thing Peter thought Jesus would say at that moment. What? Can you just just imagine Peter? He finally says it. He's been thinking it for a while. He saw the crazy, amazing miracles that have been happening. He saw the demons subject to Jesus. He saw the storm subject to Jesus. He saw bread and fish subject to Jesus. He, he saw life itself subject to Jesus. He recognized Jesus as the king. And in that moment, he finally says it. A thousand years of expectation. He says it. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And by the way, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. What? What? No, 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 Jesus, that's not right. When I was a little kid growing up in, in Jewish school, they told me that the Messiah was going to be the king, like David. Jesus, you, Jesus, that's not right. Jesus, that's not, that can't be right. That, that can't be what this is all about. Jesus, this is about us being victorious. Not, that, that. What? In fact, I have a feeling that Peter didn't even hear the very last thing that Jesus said. I have a feeling that Peter didn't get past the first part of what Jesus said. Because look at what the last thing is. I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day. I, I I bet that Peter didn't even get there. What? How? How? How could this be, Jesus? Hmm. 
The implication of what Jesus said here is so ridiculously profound. And it's, it's much more profound than, than what we recognize today. Do you remember last week I told you that the church today has downplayed the idea of the kingdom of God? Do you remember that? Remember last week when, when Jesus sent out the disciples, he said that they should preach the gospel. And then a, a one verse later, Jesus says, preach the kingdom of God. The gospel is the kingdom of God. The gospel is good news. The good news is the kingdom of God. But somehow in the church today, we have downplayed this idea of the kingdom of God. And Jesus has become just salvation, not Lord. Just Savior, not King. But for Peter and for the first century Jews, this idea of Jesus as the Christ, it's, it's world-changing. Like this is mind-blowing on a level that you cannot, we cannot understand how crazy that was for Peter to say this. If Jesus is the king, from, from, from Peter's perspective, if Jesus is the king, that means Jesus will rule the earth. He will defeat the Roman Empire. He will lead the Jews to military victory just like King David did a thousand years ago. And this explains Jesus' immediate response to Peter. Jesus' kingship and the kingdom of God are not what Peter thought they were going to be. And by the way, the disciples didn't get this all the way into the book of Acts. Even in the book of Acts, the last question they asked Jesus is, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I love how the Gospels portray the disciples as total schmucks. It means we've got a chance. We've got a chance. They didn't get it. Even to when Jesus, I, I can just imagine Jesus, he's about to ascend to heaven. And then, like, that's the last question. Can you just see Jesus? I think he did that. I'm reading into the text there. That's not in the text. They didn't get it. They didn't understand the significance of all of this and what it actually meant. Jesus is a king, but he is the king who will suffer. Jesus is the king, but he is the king that will be rejected. Jesus is a king, but he's the king that will be killed. And it is only through that suffering, it is only through that persecution, it is only through that death, that Jesus' kingship will be real. And then Jesus goes on. And I can only imagine that Peter just sat there scratching his head as, as Jesus says this next part. Listen to what Jesus says, starting in verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Sometimes in the church today, I think that we are mightily confused about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ the King. I think sometimes the church today 
has not progressed any farther than Peter in this passage. We still act like there's going to be this victorious military victory. Has the church today lost touch with what it means to deny ourselves? Have we lost touch with the idea of taking up our cross? Have we lost touch with what it means to suffer for Jesus Christ? I feel like the church today is confused. We're confused about what it means that Jesus is king. We have rights. We need to defend our rights. We need to fight. We need to protect ourselves. Can I ask you this? Why are we not saying the following phrases quite as loudly as those? We need to deny ourselves. We must take up our cross. We want to lose our life. Haven't heard that one much, have we? Isn't that strange? It almost sounds silly for me to say that, doesn't it? Well, those aren't American things to say. Really? (laughs) You know, we're subjects of God's kingdom first. We are Americans second. Have we learned or have we lost to embrace the life of our king? Suffering. Denial of self. A loss of life is the way of Jesus. And then the way of Jesus is resurrection from the dead. Did you get the order? The path that we are to take is the same path as our king. Look again at verses 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. So can I ask you this? I mean, there's this stuff going around that we're so persecuted right now. Really? In the last seven days, how have you suffered for Christ? Do do I need to get a piece of paper? I mean, do we need to write this down because there's so many? Our attitude is kind of skewed right now, church. In the last seven days, how have you denied yourself? Can you write that down? In what way have you denied yourself for the kingdom of God in the last seven days? Anybody? Anybody? 
Well, actually, things are going pretty good. Hmm. In the past seven days, how have you taken up your cross? If, if someone came to you and said, oh, you're a Christian, how have you taken up your cross in the last seven days? What would you say? Well, uh, uh, hmm, I had fish sticks on Friday. Well, that's probably not a good one. Uh, well, I, um, Oh, I've been enduring a blast of political text messages on my phone. Mm. Very, very dangerous. Uh, well, let's see. I, I, uh, I've controlled my mouth. Oh, wait, I did pretty much swear like a sailor a couple days ago. Yeah. So I guess in that way, I pretty much look like everybody else around me. Yeah, so I can't really count that one. We are supposed to be suffering, denying ourselves, carrying our cross, putting others' needs before our own. You understand that's part of the Christian walk? Do you understand that the path to resurrection is by following in the footsteps of Jesus? Do you understand that Jesus as our King means that we recognize him for who he is as king, and that is the suffering king. Do we want to really make a difference for the kingdom of God in this place? Do we actually want to, or do we want to be comfortable? Do we want to defend our rights? Is that what we want? Or do we actually want to make a difference for Jesus Christ in this place? I leave you with this. How will you suffer for the kingdom of God in the next seven days? What will you do to deny yourself in the next seven days? Maybe it will be something small. Maybe you can just concentrate on being set apart for God. Don't use coarse language. <laughs> Don't be like everybody else, even if, even if it causes people to think that you're a little bit strange. How will you take up your cross? How will I? That's what it means that Jesus is the Christ of God. Thank you, Lord, that you are God. How could this be that you could have came with power and with command of legions of angels? How could it be that you could have came with a flaming sword that could have cut down every enemy in your path 
And you instead chose to be the suffering servant. That you instead chose to deny yourself. How could that be? Jesus, that's not what I want. I must die to myself so that I can live forever. Help us to be a people like that. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.